feelings and the human condition, they're all similar. You know, we all feel the same way. We all feel shame. We all feel guilt. We all feel fear. We all feel contentment. We feel happiness. We feel joy. All of those things, right? And, you know, people say, I wish I couldn't feel all those negative feelings. And like when I, you know, if you asked me maybe 10 years ago, if that was the case for me, I'd probably like, yeah, I wish I could never feel those feelings. But I'm really, really glad that I'm able to feel some of those negative feelings that I have today because I know in my my heart and my head that I never have to pick up again and I can get through it no matter what it is. And it's important that I feel negative feelings because without that, I can't feel the things like joy, contentment and happiness. Welcome to the Head to Heal podcast, where you'll go head over heels learning about how the body and the brain work together to either feed disease or fight it. I'm your host, Jordana Sade, certified holistic nutritionist and founder of The Mindful Clinic. With a background in nutrition, behavioral neuropsychology, and hypnosis, I'm going to walk you through the root cause of your symptoms and disordered behaviors. The body has an innate ability to heal. No one is destined for illness, and most, if not all, disorders can be reversed. Come with me as we develop a new understanding of how you can use your head to heal and truly thrive. Hi everyone, it's Jordana from the Head to Heal podcast. Today I am so excited to have a special guest. This is Alan. Alan is the founder of Soulless Recovery and Alan and I met each other actually working at a rehab center in Toronto. And so as you most of you guys know, addiction is so, so close to my heart and I'm so excited to have this conversation with Alan. And um, yeah, I mean, I'll just let him kind of take the floor, but welcome. This is the Head to Heal podcast. Thank you for having me, Jordana. It's really, really nice to be here. It's really nice to speak with you. I certainly love your energy and all of the good things that you provide and all the informative things. So I do follow some of your posts and some of your stories and reels and everything like that. So I really want to say that you do great work and I'm honored to be here. Yay. Well, I'm so glad you follow along. I know uh, food psychology or overeating tendencies or food addiction, whatever you want to call it, is not the typical addiction that we would see in the clinic. But I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about you. So why don't we just, why don't you just kind of go right back to the beginning and tell me about your story and how you ended up where you are? Probably go back to about 2010. Um, you know, when I really first uh, noticed that, you know, I was a very accomplished person. Um, you know, I had a degree from university. I went into business and marketing and sales. Um, you know, I sort of did the thing that, you know, was sort of instilled to me by my parents, which is like, you know, get an education, you know, go to, go to school, you know, get a good career, get a good job and, you know, have a family and all that stuff. Right. And I think it was, uh, you know, in 2010 when, um, you know, I noticed myself really great gravitating towards, um, you know, just a, a social scene of, you know, where, you know, nightlife and things like that. And I think that's where, um, you know, my addiction and my substance use became problematic. It, it wasn't necessarily the component of like, oh my God, like I really love this and I enjoy this. Like I want to keep doing it. I think for a lot of it, it was really to just to fit in because, um, you know, as I was doing all of these things for myself, like getting an education and working, um, I, I really didn't, um, you know, have the ability or, the, or really understand because my life was moving so fast, like who I was as a person. And um, I think what substances did at that time was um, it allowed me to sort of fit in into like a social culture and just feel like I'm accepted. And, um, you know, as I, uh, you know, started doing a lot of things with shows and promoting and, uh, you know, things like that with events, I sort of got lost in this. Uh, pattern or this rhythm of, you know, substance use. And it's just becoming sort of this relevant normalcy uh, of my environment because it doesn't matter where I feel um, you put somebody in, you know, the human condition has the ability to adapt anywhere, right? Whatever, under the most negative uh, circumstances or the most positive circumstances, whatever it is, right? And I just felt myself that the human condition for me was to adapt um, I was, and, and, and sort of the substance use became sort of like a normal thing. So, you know, I um, really started to notice a problem there. I had some some issues with um, my car and, and just, just a bunch of things happened. And that's when I sort of saw that I, you know, was telling myself, okay, like, you know, I can, I can stop. And primarily um, it was, it was drugs, you know, alcohol was, was also a factor in the beginning, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I felt, I knew I needed to, to stop or I knew that it was becoming problematic. I just, I didn't know how, 
I didn't know how, um, I didn't know what to do. Um, and I, you know, obviously with addiction comes this idea or this level of stigmatism that happens where it's like, hey, you can't say that you have a problem or, you know, the way that I grew up was dad was like, never show your feelings, like be, you know, suppressed, like, like learn how to be strong, be disciplined, be somebody that's can just, you know, work through things, you know, things like that. So that was sort of instilled to me. So when I started to notice myself slipping, it was this problematic thing and I and I didn't really know what to do and I didn't really know how to ask for help or if I should ask for help, right? So I finally did at some point in 2011 and, you know, I sort of struggled for a number of years and as I struggled for a number of years, it wasn't that I didn't understand or get, you know, what I could do in order for myself to heal. I think, you know, for me, it was just how much work do I really want to put in and how seriously am I taking this? Because for a lot of years, I thought that I can outthink this. I didn't understand the connotation or the correlation between addiction being a thinking problem or just a drug problem. And I thought it was just the drug problem. So, you know, as I continue to move forward, I'm thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to grow out of this. Oh, like, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, get a relationship. I'm going to get, you know, um, a different career move. I'm going to, you know, really flourish in my, you know, all of these things that were taught that were important to me, you know, as a part of the human condition. And, you know, I, I, I was getting some of those things, but inside of myself, I, I really didn't know who I was um, and I felt lost and the drugs were just a way to, to numb and in a way as a crutch, it was a crutch for me, but, but I still didn't want to do the work. So, you know, you fast forward, gosh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe, you know, six, seven years, um, you know, I'm in and out of treatment centers, you know, I'm, I'm telling my family that I'm okay. Um, you know, I'm giving them this like level of hope and, you know, I, I, inside of me, um, I want to stop, but there's like a piece of me that doesn't want to stop. And because, you know, drugs became my identity for so long. And when that becomes your identity, that's where the human condition adapts to that. So any sort of relevance of change or the idea of something drastic in my life happening, there was like this fear that I was paralyzed by. And, and I, and I thought to myself, okay, this is bad. But the idea of actually wanting to change everything and that scary thought process around that that fear, I'd rather go this way because I know and I'm familiar. And this is sort of my normal, you know, route right now, even though it's doing all of these things for, to me that I shouldn't have, I'm having really bad consequences. Um, you know, I'm really not liking myself still. I'd rather go to that comfortability piece. I'd rather go to that place where I can feel a level of, of somewhat normalcy. And chaos was was huge too. Like I was like addicted to the chaos, right? Um, and I and I couldn't really sit still with myself um at all either, right? So, you know, that fear piece was was really huge. So, you know, you fast forward, um, you know, a couple of years later, again, in and out, in and out, um, you know, I, my substance use started to progress and I started to um, use different things, a lot harder things, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of dangerous, illicit drugs. Um, and I never thought that I would, you know, go down that path, um, but I did, you know, something that I'll, I'll share with you too, um, you know, throughout those years growing up was my brother also struggled with substance abuse. Um, and he passed away at the age of 34 in 2011 um, to, due to an opiate overdose. And, um, you know, that was difficult. Um, and I really didn't know how to process that because, again, I use exterior outlets as a way to sort of, you know, numb myself. And it's not just drugs. It could be other things that are going on. So, you know, being in that, like, lifestyle of, like, having a business and then working in the club business, like, I was very, very good at suppressing, escaping, and numbing. And that was sort of the, the go-to. So going back to what I said, the illicit drugs that I was using, I started actually using the same substances that, you know, my brother passed away from. So, you know, here I am back then, I think about it, and I'm thinking to myself, I will never go down this path. I will never go down this path. I look my mom and my dad in the face. I'll never go down that same path as he did. And lo and behold, here I am doing that, right? So the insanity of, you know, this idea that I would rather not feel anything or not really look at any sort of sense or realm of reality feels more comfortable to me than, than, this, than this change and not really understanding how severe consequences were because for a while there wasn't so many consequences. It was just I didn't like myself until those consequences really, really uh, followed me. And then I got to the point where, 
you know, you fast forward to 2018 when I when I got clean and sober again, you know, I was on the streets. I had nowhere to go. Um, you know, I come from a really privileged, you know, white suburban Jewish, you know, rich family. And, you know, my family was taught to tell me like, hey, like we we can't we love you, but we we can't we can't talk to you anymore. Like like you're you're not in our lives. You're not in our lives anymore, right? Because I think for for my parents, it was they didn't want to make the same mistake they did with with my brother that they did with me, and that that was never a topic of conversation. So obviously, they did a little bit of work on themselves to really understand the concept of boundaries, codependency. And learning how to have uh, really, really healthy boundaries with somebody, despite how hard it is for them. So I got clean October 16th, 2018. And that was off of all mood or mind-altering substances, including Suboxone, which is an opiate replacement therapy. So I count that as not me being clean and sober. At least that's just my experience. Anybody else can tell you differently. My experience, um, you know, I, I, I count it right after I was able to get off all the medication that... I needed in order to start fresh. Um, so I was told in 2018 when I finished treatment, hey, you should probably work at the treatment center that you got clean at, or at least volunteer to see if you like it. And I said to myself, well, I'm used to making a certain amount of money. That really never helped me. Uh, I'm used to living a, a really, you know, privileged and, and pretty, you know, great lifestyle, you know, but that didn't help me. Um, I'm used to making, you know, good money and, you know, having a lot of different avenues to where I can really flourish in my life from a social standpoint too. That didn't really help me in the past. So I was willing to do everything at this point, you know, six treatment centers in five years, Jordan, I'm, I'm willing to do everything I can at this point. Someone told me, Hey, you should, you should volunteer for free for three months and not say a, a word, you know, and just put your head down and see if you like it. I started working with youth in 2018 um really was challenged by that you know because I, again i come from like a business and sales background but i was somebody because i went to treatment so many times i you know you didn't even have to give me a diploma or anything i really knew what to do or what to not do anyways not what to do but what to not do so i i, I fell into that role and you know lo and behold a couple months in they're like hey we really like you you should go work full time down here, and and you know, and the person that was in my support group that was telling me or convincing me to do this was like, "Will you do anything you can to stay clean and sober this time?" And I said, "Yes, I will," because the desperation was still there for me. See, in the beginning, that's all it was was desperation. In the beginning, all it was was how do I not use substances every single day? That was the only thing that I cared about because I knew big picture. Even though I had a family in Toronto, even though I had a daughter in Toronto, I knew that I could not be there. Or, or be present if I didn't do this. Maybe I'll go back after and talk about how I thought having a beautiful baby girl was going to help me stay clean and sober. It didn't. It made it, it made it worse. So again, there's all of these you know external things that people think. Okay, like if I just do this, I you know, or if I have this, or if I have this much money, if I have this many kids, or if I have this wife or relationship or husband or whatever the case is, I will be okay. And the reality is, is if I don't do work on myself, if I don't find out who I am as a person, if I don't feel content being with or without, you know, I, I'll always go back, you know, to that self-seeking that they talk about the self-seeking, right? So I'm, I'm volunteering, um, I get hired, um, I start working with youth, I start also working um, in a program with adults as well. So I'm doing both. I'm moving up really fast because they really like my energy, they really, they really like my message, you know, and I'm good at it, I know, and I, and I got good at it really fast, I think. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn or, or give myself an ego. It's just, you know, people have told me that. And, you know, for the first while, I, I didn't really believe them until I was okay with being feeling comfortable with myself. And then, um, you know, I, I got good at it, right? So, you know, fast forward a little bit, you know, they say to me, hey, why don't you go to school? We'll pay for your schooling to go do this as a part of the gig that we got here. This is one of the benefits. I said, sure. You know, so I'm making, you know, very little money, but as I'm working, I'm getting up every day and going to myself like, wow, like today's going to be a really good day. Like, wow, today was a great day. Wow. I really feel good about myself right now. Like I really feel the, um, like myself, I really feel myself. Like, like I feel this, I don't know if it's like a, a spiritual energy or, or like, or something where I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm really feeling like a different person. And not necessarily that I'm like a bad person or anything like that. I just, the the self-centeredness and the self-seeking slipped away. 
you know, and that was something that I didn't really realize was such a huge problem. But when I, you know, did some work on myself in the treatment process, I realized that it was a huge problem for me because see, I was always somebody that because of how entitled I was, I always put conditions on things. So if you want me to be responsible for any level of effort, there's got to be a condition to it. I don't care what it is. I'm not doing it otherwise, right? So, you know, like that perspective or that sort of idea or that notion that like the world owed me, I had to smash that. I had to smash that, you know, and, uh, you know, working this in this field in the beginning anyways, it really gave me uh, a sense of humility. I really needed that humility and I really needed to find a purpose and a sense of purpose because I think I lost that along the way. Oh, I never even really had it, to be honest, you know, despite all of those good things and acclimates and, and everything that people think is going to give you that 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 long-term happiness. It just, it didn't work for me. So uh, I went to school, um, I got uh, a diploma in, uh, in counseling, um, and then I uh, went and got um, practicum, did, um, you know, some other stuff related to how to get a certificate, and then I became a licensed uh, Canadian addiction counselor, um, and then I became uh, an international addictions counselor too. So I'm licensed to practice uh, addiction counseling anywhere in the world. I also uh, became a recovery coach, certified recovery coach. It was, it was great. And for those first few years, you know, like I felt really, really happy and really, really content. I started moving up in the company, got out of uh, working with youth and worked primarily with adults. Um, you know, ran, uh, you know, a lot of different groups, which related to uh, process addiction. So, you know, there were some gambling groups, uh, there was a co parenting group where, um, you know, guys, because it was a male treatment center, all male treatment center, and it was where guys would, um, you know, have their own little process group and talk about, okay, how do I be a present father in my kid's life? Or how do I show up in my life? In his life, right? And, you know, depending on, on, you know, the situation or circumstances, some dads haven't seen their kids in years. Some dads were, you know, there living and married with with a partner and, and had kids, but weren't really present. You know, it, it was a lot of different um, circumstances for a lot of different people. But what people could relate to in that was the feelings. And that's the same thing for me. I didn't necessarily always relate to what people were sharing, but I related to how I was feeling and how they were feeling. And feelings and the human condition, you know, they're very, they're all similar. You know, we all feel the same way. We all feel shame. We all feel guilt. We all feel fear. We all feel contentment. We feel happiness. We feel joy, all of those things. Right. And, you know, people say, I wish I couldn't feel all those negative feelings. And like when I, you know, if you asked me maybe 10 years ago, if that was the case for me, I'd probably like, yeah, I wish I could never feel those feelings, but I'm really, really glad that I'm able to feel some of those negative feelings that I have today because I know in my my heart and my head that I never have to pick up again and I can get through it no matter what it is. And it's important that I feel negative feelings because without that, I can't feel the things like joy, contentment, and happiness. I, I worked uh, at the center in Vancouver and I made the decision, um, you know, after being there for five years and really building a life for myself, you know, that it was time to, you know, be a father to my daughter because I was going back and forth quite a bit, traveling back and forth from Toronto, Vancouver, Vancouver to Toronto. But, you know, it was really difficult for me to not see her all those years. But again, one thing that I learned was how do I smash the perspective that I had? And it was how do I put in enough time, enough effort, enough energy, um, you know, to look at what the overall big picture is. And the overall big picture was, is I had a responsibility to show up in her life. First, I had to show up for myself. Then I had to, you know, be that person for her. But I couldn't do that before I did this. I couldn't. As selfish as it sounds, as emotional, as as heart disheartening as it sounds, like that 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 was just the reality for me because I have a tangible record that shows me when I put everything else before my recovery, I will lose those things, including her, including you know, you know, the mother of my of my child, which was a relationship that went you know south because of my substance use. So. You know, I, I learned a lot of things around being a counselor, running groups and everything like that. Um, and when I made the move here in uh, 2000 or May of this year, I actually opened uh, a company called Sol Solace Recovery or Solace Recovery, but Solace Recovery. And um, I thought to myself, like, how how much more can I give back with, with you know, without it being sort of in this uh, controlled, you know, treatment center environment, like, 
I really want to continue to work with people because I started actually getting private clients out in Vancouver that I was working with separately. Um, and I thought to myself, like, I really want to continue to work with people and help them see the level of empowerment that they've once lost. How do I f- help them find that sense of purpose? Because see, that desperation piece was gone after a couple of years or even after a year. And what was really keeping me going was the fulfillment of doing this, the fulfillment of working with other people and giving back what was so freely given to me. You know, I, I thought to myself, like, how can I continue to move forward with this? And, you know, so I opened uh, Solace Recovery, I believe, January, February 2023, something like that. But, you know, it was just sort of a side thing that I had for private counseling and customers and everything like that. And then, um, you know, I really uh, put it into motion in, in May once I moved back. I really wanted to, you know, bring that sort of recovery that I learned there over here. And it's been a crazy journey so far. Um, I know I really have been able to, you know, be here and, um, you know, learn learn from like a lot of, the, you know, the mistakes and, and the things that I've done in the past, because, um, you know, one of the biggest fears I still had before coming here was, can I do this? Like, can I really pack up everything that I feel comfortable with, that I feel familiar with, that I feel like, like at home with? Do I feel like I, I'm in a good sort of streak and momentum and rhythm right now? Like, it's so hard to break away from that, you know, but because I had the ability to uh, stay clean and sober and because I had the ability to actually like work the program and talk to people, I made that decision. I made that move. And, you know, I took whatever I had that was fear that was paralyzing me and I was able to move past it. That's something that I probably would have never been able to do maybe even the three or four or two or, or or years ago. Right. So even a year ago, Right, because it was still like a, a very like I really need to do this, but I don't want to do it right now because it's just it's just the thought of it is like so overbearing and overwhelming. So, yeah, I came here in May 2023, you know, and I started working uh, at a center in Etobicoke, um, and I, I really loved the work, um, and I was able to um, really diversify some of my sets of skills that I learned out in Vancouver and do it and plug it into what I was doing um, at the center here in Toronto. And, you know, coupled with that was uh, Solace Recovery, which I feel, um, you know, has been able to sort of create some more sort of substance, create some more, you know, level of of, of energy and positivity and just really, um, you know, becomes this piece for me where, um, you know, I can actually continue to do the work, you know, that I can to help others, right? And, um, you know, I, I feel like, for me and the way that I sort of do the work with others, it's a very compassionate, dedicated, you know, recovery support service that I have with people. Right. And I think, um, you know, it's really, really important to, to help others. And it's really, really important to have family involved too. So part of the thing, something that I do with, 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 uh, you know, the counseling is I work a lot with families. I work a lot with, with the individuals struggling with substance use you know, I do a lot of things. I plug them with resources and everything like that. And I think that sort of this totality of somebody's like recovery or looking at it from a universal perspective, um, you know, the more resources and the more sort of, you know, information and the more sort of empathetic, empathetic and compassionate approach that you can have with people or help them, you know, find a sense of meaning and create a new way for them is so important. So, you know, it's it's been, you know, six months here. So far, you know, things are things are good. Things are busy. Um, I really enjoy what I do. I don't know. That's that's all I really got. <laughs> well, um, okay. I don't even know where to begin. I have like three pages of notes. So I guess the first thing that I want to say is just thank you so much for sharing that with me and with my audience. Like it was so raw. It was so authentic. Getting to understand your story and where you came from. Like I'm a huge proponent of that. That's how I started this. I believe that. It's almost it's like that that um that saying like you never trust a skinny chef. Not saying that people that haven't gone through addiction can't be effective counselors, but but I really believe that people who have this journey and then like end up in this workplace, that's a huge part of your mission, right? And so being able to see kind of your story from start to finish is is so profound. So much has happened. I'm so sorry about your brother too. That's like terrible. 
Yeah, I just, uh, I, I had no idea that that, that you had gone through that, you and your family. And obviously, if you don't feel comfortable answering my questions, because I can be a little bit presumptuous, <laughs> just let me know. I'm open. Go. So I couldn't help but notice, of course, like the way that you spoke about your father was is very similar to my dad. My dad is also Middle Eastern. And he, I don't know if actually your dad is Middle Eastern or your mom or maybe both, but so he moved here. So he's an immigrant. And there's just this tendency with, I mean, generalize majorly, but with immigrants specifically from that part of the world where it's like a lot of overperforming, a lot of perfectionism, a lot of not good enough. It's very, my dad is a very authoritative type of man and nothing I ever did, no matter how much I tried, it was just never enough really. Thank goodness things have shifted, but you know, you and your brother both struggled with substance abuse. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers, but like, where, where do you think that came from? You know, like you said, it started for you kind of after you had a degree, after you had all these things, but like the the likelihood of two children struggling with addiction, you know, I do think environment played a big factor too. Um, you know, my mom and dad bless their heart. Um, you know, our, our amazing, our amazing parents care so much. And you're right. Like, you know, that immigrant sort of, uh, you know, for me, it was uh, the European sort of style. It was like, you know, very, very loving to some degree and extent, but I think, you know, along the way for them, you know, they, you know, really started to get their own success and their own sort of glory and everything like that. And I think, you know, them, you know, they were around, but they weren't really around, you know? So I think, that environment piece is huge where, um, you know, my brother, after he, you know, went through high school or during high school, whatever it was, I think it was for him, it was the, the crowd of people that he started to really affiliate himself with, because I think, you know, for him, you know, that proponent or that idea of like, I don't know where I belong or how I'm going to be able to fit in. So how do I continue to, you know, like I'm a piece or how do I continue to feel like I'm a, uh, you know, how do I find my identity? How do I find my identity? And, and for him, you know, the social influence was a huge piece. I think also, you know, that sense of entitlement, you know, creeped in because, you know, he was, you know, given a lot of resources, lots of different things um, without any sort of real work attached to it. Right. And I think that's where lots of people uh, struggle with their self-worth, where they don't feel like they're what they're doing is meaningful, or maybe, you know, to the degree, to the degree of, of what they're doing or how they're doing it is meaningful. And I think deep down, like, you know, for him, that was a bit, a big thing. I think the self-worth piece was huge. Um, you know, for me, probably the same thing a little bit where, um, you know, social influence played a huge piece and a huge part, but also too, like you mentioned earlier, like not really feeling like I would ever, you know, feel good enough. And I don't want to use that as an excuse. I don't think there's any good enough reason for why people use substances. You know what I mean? Because I just, you know, the degree or what it does to, to people and how it destroys families and relationships and all that stuff is is huge. So, but again, for lots of people, they're, they're not, they don't know that. And that's just sort of the coping mechanism they have, which, you know, is a very powerful one for, for a very, very long time. But I think for me, yeah, it was a social influence was big. And that idea like, okay, I really need to find out who I am as a person and I'm struggling with, with my identity and, you know, who I am as a person and, and the entitlement piece, you know, couple that with everything. But yeah, you know, the way I grew up was don't show your feelings, don't show your emotions, you know, like toughen up, be disciplined like we were, right? Because they came here with with nothing and they were able to pave the way for themselves very, very effectively, you know, so it's sort of that same sort of mind frame that was instilled. Um, but somewhere along the way, we both we both sort of got lost in that. Yeah. You said so many golden nuggets, but um, one thing you said, you know, was you talked about the sense of belongingness. And it was interesting because today I was actually um, just diving into some like positive psychology stuff. And I, I have a huge focus in my practice on like childhood and all that, because I really do think like, I know that you said that, you know, your addiction started, you know, kind of after school when you were trying to fit in and all these things. But I actually think it starts a long, 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 long before that. And so the sense of belongingness is so important to human beings because we are designed to be in a pack. Like if we think even from like an evolution perspective, like if there was like a weakest link, like that person or that that um, animal or whatever would just actually naturally die. Like when um, somebody doesn't feel like they fit in, this is or like rejection of the pack, 
the immune system starts to send all these signals to the body that like it's slowly dying. And we develop things like cancer. Like it's actually crazy if you look at like the mind-body connection from that perspective. So that sense of belonging is so important. And one of the reasons why I picked up drugs at the tender age of 13 was was because of that, was because I wanted to fit in, was because I, I wanted people to like me. I never had friends growing up. I was bullied all the things. But um, as soon as I did, I had this perfect not only best friend that was always there for me as long as I like immediately reinforcing, right? You take it, you're immediately reinforced. But I now had a group of people where we could like trauma bond together in this, in this very like, I don't know, like toxic way, I guess. So I just, I thought that was really interesting. I just wanted to point that out about, you know, the sense of belonging and like trying to find yourself because I believe it was Gabor Mate that said this, so I'm not going to take credit for it, but he says that, we call it recovery because we're recovering ourselves, like we're finding ourselves. And you mentioned so many times just, you know, not knowing who you were, not liking yourself, and then that kind of leading to um, wanting to escape the current reality with whatever substance you were into. So it's really, you know, I never got into, uh, like, I didn't do any, um, what was this word I'm looking for? Uh, opioids, <laughs> but it doesn't like, even when I look at some of my clients with food addiction or people who are addicted to worry or shopping or whatever, it, there's so many similarities between the groups of people. And it's just, it's just incredible, you know? Well, it's, it's the behaviors, right? So this is a behavioral based sort of, you know, condition of, of, of really applying into the emotional piece. So for a lot of us, it's, I think, I feel I'm going to do based on those things, thoughts and feelings. Yeah. You know, and we're, we're conditioned that, that that's sort of the, the pattern. It's, it, you know, it starts on a baby when we're, you know, when we're hungry as a baby, we cry and then here comes the food. Right. So, you know, I have a thought I'm hungry. I'm going to go get something to eat. Right. Or I'm going to, I have uh, you know, a thought I'm going to, you know, I want to buy a new car. I'm going to go buy a new car. Right. Cause I'm thinking I'm feeling a certain type of way. And then therefore I do. So what substance is, you know, what what I try to do or how I try to sort of frame it, and it doesn't work for everybody, but, you know, there's obviously cognitive behavioral therapy is a huge piece in, in, you know, recovery. And it's how do I do to change the way that I feel and think, right? I can't think my way into, into a new way of living. Yeah. I have to live into a new way of thinking. Mm. Mm. You know, I have to live into a new way of thinking. Mm. So very very challenging thing to say to someone who wants to change but struggles with substance use yeah because it's like you you're telling me i have to do some of these things that you guys are telling me to do even though i don't feel like doing them or i don't feel good in the moment but you're yet i still gotta do it and you know lo and behold you know you build a pattern and a rhythm and some consistency in what you're doing. And over time, it's like habit forming, pure habit forming 101, where it's like I do something for a while, it starts to become part of my world, part of my environment. And now, if I'm not doing it, I feel off. Mm-hmm, same. So creating that that sense of, of, of habits and, and, and being able to really build connection was huge. Like for me, the biggest piece, I think, of why I was able to, you know, get clean and sober this time was I had a community, thank God, I had a community of people um, where I was living and, and doing recovery. It was like all over. It was, it was like a huge recovery community and population. And connection was a huge piece because no matter where I went or no matter how I felt, or no matter what I did, I always felt like I was alone. And, you know, with you know, me being clean and sober, me being able to build connections with people, I never felt like that again because I could relate and people could relate to me. And, you know, that's where a lot of my friendships, uh, you know, bloomed and then blossomed. And, you know, it was just based on this, like, it wasn't based on, like, anything that was exterior, or what kind of car you had or what, you know, what you did for a living or how much money you had in the bank or what trip were we going to or whatever. It was based on, like, this cathartic, like, you know, organic sort of experience based on my vulnerability, mm-hmm. which is another thing that, you know, people really get paralyzed by is to get vulnerable. Because if you get vulnerable, people will know who you, the real you. And do I really want to show or explore, demonstrate to the people the real me or a, a, an emotional sense of me, right? Because again, 
we're so conditioned to really, um, you know, believe in that we have to be the, you know, these people that we're not and vulnerability gets thrown out the window. Like if I'm doing enough sales or I'm doing enough, um, you know, work for myself to build an empire or be this established person or whatever the case is, my life is going to be good. But here I am like thinking to myself and, and sort of contemplating and wavering between, you know, how do I, how do I get vulnerable with people? Cause I have no idea. I have no idea, you know, and, and I think that that's a piece that people still continue to miss, right? Because that vulnerability, with vulnerability comes this level of connection that you have with people. And if without that connection, without allowing somebody to, you know, help guide me in the right direction or tell me it was going to be okay when I didn't think it was going to be okay, that vulnerability piece would have never, you know, blossomed or, or continued to move forward or, or, you know, or improve. And, you know, that was a huge piece for me. That was a huge piece for me. And I think it's still something that, you know, people struggle with. It's a big thing. Hi, babes. I am so excited to talk to you about my signature program, The Mindful Method. This is the exact same method that I have been using with hundreds of successful clients to help you heal your relationship to food, to increase confidence, and to lose weight without dieting or killing yourself at the gym. If you're sick of not feeling like your best self, if you're sick of promising yourself that you'll start again on Monday, if you're sick of going on restrictive diets only to gain back the weight, I can tell you right now that if you gained it back, it did not work. You know what's healthy and what's not. You do. You just continue to choose the unhealthy option anyways. And a meal plan will not solve this issue. There is no amount of restriction or discipline or willpower that is going to stop you from self-sabotaging. The body follows the mind. Imagine a life where you don't have to think about what you can or can't eat. Imagine a life where you feel confident in all of your clothes, where every day and every way your body rebalances and you lose all of the weight so you find the truest, healthiest version of yourself. Imagine never having to start again on Monday. This is what happens when you focus on transforming the brain so weight loss is effortless. The body follows the mind, and it's time you actually get to the root cause of your issue. If you are ready to transform and find the truest, healthiest version of you without letting go of your favorite foods, I invite you to fill out the application in my bio. And if you're a good fit, we'll be in touch soon. Back to regular programming. I think that we have this perception of vulnerability that it's like, I think for a long time, I thought I was vulnerable because I I am quite extroverted and I feel like I put everything on the table and I let everyone see the real me. And so when people would say, oh, you know, you know, and I would work with my own healers, my own mentors, they would say, Jordan, you need to be more vulnerable. Like we want to see the real you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm so me. But you know, when we pick and choose the parts of ourselves that we want to show. So like everybody has shit. They don't want to tell people like everybody has shit that we've done that we're so embarrassed and we never want to talk about it. We never want anyone to know. And I found that like one of the biggest part of biggest components of my recovery, for sure, working with others, but, and then seeing how some of the deepest, darkest secrets I had about myself that I was like mortified to even think I could, I could do such a thing seeing other people actually go through that same thing and like openly talking about it was so healing in itself that it was almost like nothing else needed to transpire from that. It Because you start to see your shadow side rather than just like pushing it down, pushing it down, like doesn't exist. Oh, I'm not listening. And, and that bringing it up to the forefront and just like creating recognition around it in itself actually takes away the, the fuel to the fire. Because I believe that that like lying and the the covering up and the escaping is fuel to the the addictive fire. It's like a lot of these behaviors are really rooted in shame. Like there was so much lying, stealing, just like stupid things that I went through and that I I've seen my clients go through that the shame around that is actually what keeps that those tendencies alive. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That does fuel it, right? Like one thing that was taught to me, you know, in the beginning was, you know, don't make decisions based on crappy feelings. And number two was don't do stuff that you can't talk about with other people. So you know that if you talk about it, you probably shouldn't do it, you know, and that's the where the, 
you know, the value and the importance of, 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 of a support group is so, so huge. And I think, you know, that's something that just gets sometimes, you know, undermined because again, for me anyways, and this is my own personal experience, recovery is a lifestyle for me. Mm-hmm. It's not like something that I just do on a Sunday at night, you know, as part of my structured calendar of things, right? It's, it's a lifestyle for me, you know, things like going to meetings, like, you know, working with other people without this, like sponsoring people, you know, um, because that's what it told me to do, or that's what they tell me to do. Not going to like, you know, clubs and bars and stuff, because I, I don't need to be there unless it's like, a, you know, a birthday. Like, I have the freedom to to choose and make choice whether I want to do that or not. I also have the freedom and choice of having a good time and, uh, and, and enjoying my life without the use of substances. Something that I've never ever thought was gonna was gonna you know transpire, and I think that that's where a lot of the fear comes in with people because again the substance use and the crowds and the people around them it becomes their normal, and then it's like how do I break away with that? How do I like actually enjoy or have fun without drinking or using drugs? And it's yeah. a very long time for people to really understand that there, that there is a life after that. But when you're in it, very difficult to see because all you see is that sandbox in front of you. You're not looking at you know, things out here and out here and you're not looking at all the big picture things that can happen with your life because you don't know. You're just laser focused on the immediate, you know, and people get stuck into that. People get stuck into that realm of thinking. So, you know, like it's really important to be able to, like you said, give, um, but also do things or not do things that you can't talk about, right? And a big piece for me, Jordana, that really started to allow me to heal, you know, in the beginning was journaling. And that was something that I I, I never really um, understood. And, you know, when you think of journaling, you think of like a teenage girl on her bed journaling dear about. Diary. You know, yeah, dear diary, right? Because, again, that was sort of, you know, when you would watch movies or you'd watch things, you'd see like the dear diary thing. And that's the connotation that you had. So, you know, the last time that I got clean and sober at a human center, they part of their programming was you need to journal where you can't live here anymore. Like, this is part of the basic stuff. Like, you have to do this stuff. So the journaling was huge for me, and it's still something that, um, you know, I, I still do. On, not all the time or not, like, on a daily basis, but something that I do, you know, every month or, or whatever, where I'm able to reflect on some time and some days and, um, you know, understand and see where I've had some progress, but also learn how to process my feelings by actually writing from pen to paper not on the computer, not typing it, actually pen to paper, right? Because again, like I said, there's an organic and cathartic process around allowing yourself to process how you feel and put it on paper. Once it's on paper, there's a visual image of it. And it's like, wow, oh my gosh, I'm feeling content. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling anxious. And sometimes you don't really think about those things when you're when you're in the process of doing it or writing it or, or living your day. But when you actually have it on paper, it's, it's, it's really cool because you can see that. So that was a big thing that helped me too. Yeah. Um, it's actually more than just mapping it out. Like the catharsis of like writing it down, neuroscience is confirmed over and over again, because like emotions are stored in the body as much as I'm like all about the brain, the mind, whatever, but like emotions are stored in the body. And so when we use, we actually put pen to paper, we're using muscles, like we're actually getting it out onto a piece of paper. And I'm, I've actually gotten myself into a lot of trouble with my pen to paper because I can't read my writing after. And then when my notes get subpoenaed to court and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Um, but it is, it is actually, that was a huge part of my recovery too. And I recommend it with all of my clients. And I do think there's this big kind of connotation of, you know, dear diary. Now I'm, um, people say, I don't know what to write. And you don't even have to know. It's not, you have to reflect on your day or anything. Like you can just write down a couple of words, but it's about really getting it out of your body and, and, and onto something else. So it doesn't just like all fester inside, but journaling is such an important tool. Yeah. Big thing for me was learning what part did I have to play in anything. So there was a bunch of questions that they would ask me. Actually, I used this same guidance, this exact same structure, exact same questions. I actually use this with clients where, you know, it asks you obviously to reflect on your day, but it asks you, have I played a part in any any wrongdoing today? Have I rationalized, minimized, or justified any of my actions today? You know, what was some of my most prominent thinking today? Like some things like that, because no matter how much of a nice guy I thought I was, I had a hard time taking responsibility for things. Yeah. You know, black and white. Yeah. Black and white, you look at it. What the journals did for me or what it allowed me to do was learn how to, you know, they say it in, uh, you know, the rooms of AA or anyway, learn, learn, help me learn how to take my own inventory. 
Because someone told me, if you can't take your own inventory, you will not stay clean long-term. And the reason why you won't stay clean and sober long-term is you will always find a reason or um, not have a responsibility to how you you contribute to conflict, how you contribute to negative things going on in your life because you won't see your part in it. When you journal and you actually think about it daily, you start to get good at it, right? It's like anything that you do, like recovery, journaling, all that stuff. It's you got to practice it, right? You got to practice it. I always look at it like it's like a sports analogy. Like they wouldn't just put a hockey player, a basketball player, a football player on the field or on the ice right off the bat. You got to practice. You got to, you know, learn how to skate backwards. You got to do drills. It's the same thing with this. So, you know, what we're trying to do, you know, at the treatment centers and what we're trying to do, um, you know, working with people is give them some basic tools, um, some give them some coping mechanisms, giving them alternative ways of what's worked for other people scientifically and experience wise as well, and learn how to get good at that. If you get good at that, you get good at, you know, other things and then, you know, your life starts to change, but you got to get good at it. For sure. The brain is a big muscle. And I think that more than anything, when people are stuck in cycles, whether it's addiction or whatever it is, like the fear is like, well, I'm just stuck. Like I can't get out. And when we, when you kind of like the taking inventory piece is really about taking responsibility for yourself. And when you can take responsibility for yourself, then it's like just you and you, like you can't blame anyone else. So like nobody's coming to save you. Like you got to figure it out yourself. And from there, then we can actually like take, get back in the driver's seat and like take back control of like our behaviors and practice and all those things. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, you said that, you know, you were struggling for a while, you knew you kind of had a problem, but you didn't really know where to go to and you didn't really want to change. So if you can just share with me and with my audience, like, how do you know, because a lot of people use substances, right? And how do you know they have a problem? And when should you seek help? Well, I think, you know, lots of times you don't really know that you have a problem. I think it takes somebody else or some other people in your life to point that stuff out to you. Mm. Um, I think when you start to see or start to tell yourself, okay, like I should probably do something about this. It's not really helping me go down a right path or maybe I'm not feeling like myself or things, things are starting to happen in my life that are making my life unmanageable. I think, you know, I think I need to take a look at this. And and that's when I would say, maybe you got to take a look at this. Some people don't, you know, again, it's a case by case basis. Um, it's a person to person basis. Some people's bottoms are a lot deeper um, or a lot higher than than others. Um, you know, it really depends on on the person. So, what I would say is, you know, if you're struggling with not being able to uh, regulate emotionally and having a hard time and just knowing that that's what you're going through is substances and that's sort of been your your coping mechanisms for so long, you know, till a point where consequences are starting to happen to your life, you you, you probably have a, a problem or an issue, right? And, you know, I think that online right now, you're able to, um, you know, find a lot of different resources and support groups, you know, in the city, um, you know, there's tons of meetings, tons of AANACA uh, meetings online, in person, you know, and it's really difficult to, um, you know, take the courage to actually go for those. I remember when I went to my first one with my cousin, you know, it took a lot of courage, right? So, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there um, that you, you can use as a way to, you know, really help yourself uh, get plugged in. Yeah, I, I think I was just curious because I remember, you know, like drinking a tequila before work or like in the back of the room and just like not thinking I had a problem. And then looking back on it, I'm like, how did I not understand or like driving drunk and getting into an accident? Like, how do I not know that that's an issue at that time? But but I wanted your opinion, because really, at that time, I, d- I didn't think I had a problem. Like I was like, kind of like, oh, like, it's just going to blow over. It's not going to be like this forever. But when you're waking up and the guy who sells you the alcohol knows your name and you're the first person in the store every day, like it, it is a problem, right? And so like, do you think there's any cases where people can just use substances and it be kind of benign? I mean, yeah, like, yes, I I, I, I do. I really think, I mean, again, I've seen, I've seen lots of different people, lots of different circumstances. I think, you know, if people... Like I know people that that go out and 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 drink and you know do you know do certain drugs and stuff like that and they don't let their life you know their life doesn't crumble they're still able to get it together and maybe to manage and you know have a family stuff like that I think when it starts to become more of a common thing like the the more you start doing it, doing it the repetitiveness of it I think that at some point 
if that's what you're doing and that's sort of your pattern, somewhere in that you're going to fall short or lose sight or not um, be present in something, whatever it is that you got going on for you, whether it's your family, whether it's your work, something, right? So, you know, I think, you know, for people, it, it, it's, it's, it's everyone's different. I know for myself and I know for a lot of the people that I've you know, worked with and, and gotten sober with and everything like that, like putting any sort of substance inside of me or changing anything, changing the way that I feel with a minor mood, mood altering substance, I know it probably isn't in my best interest because I've tried that before, you know, but I think that I tell myself today, why do I need something to change the way that I feel? Yeah. Why? You know, why? Mm-hmm. why do I need a substance to, to change the way that I feel? And that's the question that I'll ask myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the question that people can ask themselves too. Why, why do I need a substance to get up every day, feel content, change the way that I feel? You know, obviously there's a disconnect somewhere. Yeah. It's kind of somewhere of I'm relying on something to make me feel happy, make me feel whatever, right? And when that becomes a thing and, and there's no sort of other feeling like there's no other solution in that moment, then, you know, that's where I would be like, okay, what, what are my options here? Like, how do I change this? And for some people... They can change it right away and, you know, go to some meetings or do some therapy, um, you know, do some other things and they, they stop. And for others, it's a little bit more challenging, right? So, you know, there was, there, they always talk about the the line, like there's this like line in, in the sand, you know, with the threshold. And it's like, I've always been able to step over that line, both feet over, whereas like some people can just draw the line and not, you know, and I, I envy those people sometimes because it's like, you know, but at the end of the day, one of the things that I think that I didn't understand or didn't get with this was the acceptance piece. So I can admit to everybody, hey, I have a substance issue. I need help. The acceptance piece becomes what am I willing to do about it? So if I'm accepting, I'm willing to do something about it. If I'm not accepting, mm-hmm. back into that, hey, maybe I can drink and use socially. Maybe because... I have enough recovery under my belt that I can drink and use responsibly. Maybe because I'm a counselor, I can find a way to, to manage and balance, you know, and, and that, you know, those are the things that can come up in someone's mind, right? Like it, it can still come up in my mind sometimes. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm an addict, right? Like, like I'm an I'm addict in recovery, but, but here I am. Right. And, you know, I feel like I, when I tell people, when I talk to people about wanting to get clean and sober, I always tell them like, we all know drugs are bad. We all know, you know, um, you know, advocating and, and 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 sort of plugging into this like scene or this realm of like substances is a bad idea. It's taught to us. It was in grade seven or grade six health class, whatever, right? And and I tell people, I don't. I'm not trying to get you guys to hate drugs because I love drugs. Yeah. I don't like the consequences that came with it, and I've been able to build a life for myself today thankfully by the grace of God that I value more than doing that. Right. But it took some years. And what I'm trying to say to your, your audience and your listeners is it's a process. You got to trust the process. You got to learn how to have some faith, some blind faith sometimes, which is very scary. You got to help yourself by building and building a support group of people that, you know, you can talk to and, and, and find that outlet. You got to do things like, you know, whatever works for you, whether it's sports, meditation, you know, whether it's exercise, like all, all of this is a huge encompassing piece. And I don't think, you know, there's a one size fits all or one shoe fits all. It's it's really about the person, like I said, case to case basis. So it really takes somebody some time to really figure that out. And, you know, someone that's struggling, it's it's like, we want it now. Like we want to feel good right now, right away. Right. And, and that's where that instant gratification can plague so many people because that pattern in our brain is so wired to, if I do, I will be rewarded. That reward pleasure center in the little part of the brain is lit up constantly, right? And that's where like pause comes in, post acute withdrawal, because that 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 reward system, the reward pleasure center, is still self seeking, trying to you know get that that next thing that's going to make the make the person feel good, right? And make the brain sort of operate like it's normally used to. So that's where the shift and the and the breaking the patterns happen, where. I have to do something for a while in order for my brain and my my the neurology and the physiology of both my brain and my body start to get balanced again. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that, I mean, 
the length of time varies from person to person, but especially in my own practice, like sometimes it's, it's not, I think people think it's like a sentence, you know, like, oh my gosh, you just, you have to like wake up every day and journal every single morning in order, but it's, it's not like that. It's like, you know, you practice something over and over and over again, it's going to serve its purpose and then you're going to move on to something else. And so it like, rather, I, I agree that it, it does take practice and it's something that you have to do over and over again. And I also think that the brain is so powerful. Like, look at you and me here. Like we, this is not like, it's not, it's no longer an issue, but that comes from the willingness to be able to try and practice. And so my next question for you is, um, do you think, and like, what would, what would you say, I guess, are tendencies that would make somebody more successful in recovery versus like more likely to relapse? I mean, I think, like I said, you know, talking about what's going on for you and being honest, you know, like I, I'm a big believer in talk therapy. I'm a big believer in sharing about what's going on for you because it may not solve what's happening to you or for you from a perspective or just by sharing it, but it certainly, and it will, I promise you, lessen the intensity of the thought in your head. Mm. Put it out. I will lessen that intensity. I see that when people do those things. When people get really involved in, um, you know, wellness or groups or, um, you know, really making this a priority. So like we're constantly working on themselves, whether it's through 12-step fellowship or whether it's through smart recovery or whether it's, through, you know, something that they're able to do to sort of change the lifestyle. I think, you know, the tendency of just being able to really put this, you know, you're all into this and, and, and put an effort into it and really explore and work on yourself and be challenged and be open, honest, and willing to do whatever it takes, you know, because that desperation is so fresh and so and so it's there. But you know what I see um, with that is in the beginning, like I mentioned in my story, like that's you know the priority, and that's the thing. And then you know people sort of start to get complacent and they go back to you know, okay, I'm good now. Like I've done therapy, I've done meetings, I've done all that stuff, and I'm I'm good to go. I don't need any of this anymore. Thank you very much. And that's where I see the disconnect where people start to live, you know, in personalities rather than principles again. And because they're not giving back, they're not, you know, allowing themselves to show up and work with other people. I think that that's a huge piece people meet um, because I think a lot of it is like my own self journey. That's just in my experience. There's a lot of different ways people can sort of find no pun intended, they're solace, but, um, you know, it, it, again, different for everybody, but, you know, what I've found as a broad sort of perspective review where I've seen people sort of get this like change in spirituality and all that stuff has been through working with other people, um, through being honest and open and willing and talking about what's going on for them, for, you know, getting involved, all those things. And just, you know, for obviously changing and becoming a better person as well, working on character defects, you know, have some level of uh, spiritual contentment in their life, whether that's praying, meditating, you know, finding something that you're able to sort of connect with beyond yourself, beyond yourself, you know, and, and that can be through a lot of degrees and variety of different things. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to that piece that you were saying with recovery, like it's a lifestyle. It's not just like, oh, you know, we do it and then you've changed your whole life. And and that that also is resonates with me too. Like, unlike you, different stories, but um, I got clean because I got pregnant and I like couldn't use substances for nine months. But when I say that to a room full of people who are currently struggling with addiction, like some of them, they still used when they were pregnant. So like, I also have to be really sensitive when I say things like that, because I'm like, oh, you know, I just got pregnant and then I couldn't use, but like, you can still use, it is a choice. Right. But, uh, my whole life changed. And I think that like the life that you were living prior that facilitated that process, isn't the same life that you can go back into. And I think that's where a lot of the resistance comes in when we go through the transition. It's because it's like, wow, my whole life it like really revolves around this thing. And then it's not just like, oh, I'm not going to use the substance anymore. It's like, no, 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 we have to actually change everything. Uh, absolutely. If it was just about the substances, people would just go the detox, five, seven, 10 days, whatever, cycle, you know, and then they'd be like, oh, you're good to go. It's been 10 days, see you later. And we wouldn't see them again, you know, but unfortunately that's not the way it works because again, it's a behavioral based disease. It's a disease that's entered in your mind. It's a thinking problem. I always say I don't drink. I don't have a drinking problem or a drug problem. I have a thinking problem. Yeah. You know, and I, to this day, and what I want to say is, 
a lot of, you know, I've seen lots of people I know and, and, and dear friends and everything like that get, get their lives back, get some clean and sober time, and then you don't see them again. And, and lo and behold, they come back because, again, the disease centers in the mind. If I'm not, you know, doing the things that I need to do to treat my mind so that I don't think, make assumptions, start thinking of these irrational and logical, you know, crazy scenarios in my head or whatever the case is. I'm not trying to say you know, I have like a uh, you know mental condition. It's, just, it's a thinking problem, right? But I, if I don't have an outlet to be able to do that, um, you know, or to talk about that, then yeah, I'm going to start getting. I'm a prisoner in my own mind, right? And so many of those components, like you mentioned, you know, the physical piece, the emotional piece, the spiritual piece, the uh, mental piece—they're all so huge. And it's it's how do I stay balanced in that wellness wheel? And it's not that's it's not something that we can do consistently, right? You know, throughout our lives, right? So it's always trying to find different ways and things that works for you. Yeah. Is there a particular substance that you like working over another one? You like working with over another one? I mean, not really. It's 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 all like I said, all behavioral based. It doesn't really matter what the substance is. I mean, I, I have worked a lot with people with other process addiction stuff, like um you know, gambling, um, you know, I've worked with people that struggle with pornography, I've worked with people that struggle with sex and, and intimacy. I, I find, you know, sex and intimacy a very, a very, very um, intriguing one for sure, because like alcohol, sex and intimacy is a socially acceptable, you know, thing in our culture. But yeah. I think a lot of times, you know, it, that can get out of hand, but it's not sort of viewed as a serious problem or the severity of a problem because it's not, you know, it's socially accepted and it's just part of life, just like food, right? Like it's it's a part of we have to we have to have it, right? At to some degree, right? Um I mean food you have to have I mean you know what I mean, right? It's it's a part of it's just a part of our nature, right? So you know trying to sort of you know peel back the layers of somebody's behavioral component when it's like hey what i'm doing like yeah it's getting out of hand but it's it's okay to do because it's it's been told to me that it's socially acceptable right yeah. and i think that that piece is huge but also what i'm finding working with people is it's not necessarily about the sex it's about the love and the intimacy and that's the piece that you know i think it's underlined here too is that idea of like i want to feel like i'm validated and if i don't have drugs or alcohol in my life what else is going to keep me feeling validated? Oh, look, another person. Wow, this yeah. person I connect with. This person I can, you know, you know, wow, this person understands me, knows me, you know, and that becomes a thing too, right? So, you know, I think that that's sort of been one that I feel like is intrigued because I think it goes so under the radar because a lot of people can become cross-addicted to things like sex, things like intimacy, and that actually triggers people to go back and you read and resume substance yeah huge piece huge thing that we see right yeah. it's sort of like they go hand in hand together right um you know as part of it so you know things like that i feel like are are, are have been intriguing so to answer your question no there's not really any sort of substance i prefer to work with with people i think it's you know just a general um encompassing treatment plan for somebody you know can look rather similar it doesn't matter what the drugs are right but yeah, it's it's a like I said, behavioral thing. So no, I don't mind working with anybody. Yeah, I almost made it a requirement um, with my program that like you can't be in like a toxic relationship or like on dating app because it's like it's so crazy how um, quickly people will relapse when they're in this like anxious attached type of relationship or like, um, it, you know, I'm chasing somebody who doesn't love them back. It, it's crazy. And so it, it almost like, because oxytocin, I think, is such a powerful endorphin. It's like much more powerful than dopamine or serotonin or anything like that. Like this is like, yeah. And so that will take over in the craziest way. So I totally resonate with that. But yeah, so I mean, and then do you prefer, and this is more for my listeners who are listening, because I know that primarily my audience is women, but a lot of their husbands listen, a lot of them um, ask, come to me for help with, you know, alcohol or whatever. And so um, do you work with a specific gender? Um, is there, you know, a type, like a, I know you can work around the world, which is amazing, but is there like um, a, a construct or an archetype of person that is really your niche? I don't think so. I think obviously my experience has been with, you know, primarily with, with adult males, 
But I, I mean, I, 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 I do work with, with a lot of women as well. I work with a lot of women struggling with substance abuse. I work with a lot of families, yeah. with siblings. You know, um, I work with a degree of a variety of different people, right? So there's no, I mean, like I said, you know, I, I have worked primarily in my life with adult males, but I've, like I said, been able to diversify myself. So there's no real niche of, of individuals um, that I can work with. I think that, like, like I said, you know, everybody sort of has the same feelings and, you know, ways to cope are, are very similar, whether they're healthy or destructive. And I think, you know, being able to um, not separate the sort of the, the gender or the, or the circumstance is such a huge piece. So I think it's a very universally encompassing sort of thing, you know, process. Yeah, perfect. Um, it's incredible to see your recovery journey and to learn a little bit more about you, especially because I think that some of my listeners or some people who may might have been in a similar situation, when you get to that point, you just feel like it's so far gone that there's just no help. And like, here you are thriving with an amazing business. Uh, and helping other people. And so um, that's very, very inspiring. Where can we find you? Where can we find Solace Recovery? So if you want to go to um, www.solacerecovery.ca is my website. Um, and in terms of like where I'm at and things like that, um, you know, my all my contact information is, is there. Um, you know, I got a little bit of information around some of the services I offer, but obviously you can contact me on the website there and uh, through email or through uh, phone. And, you know, I do do uh, a free 10 to 15 minute consultation with people once they call to see if this is something that I could, you know, we can work together or see if there's a fit here and sort of get to sort of screen an individual and see, okay, this is what this person is dealing with. So you can find me on there. Um yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm on I'm on a bunch of different websites. I'm on psychologytoday.com too as well. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but in terms of like where you can find me, I, I'm located in Vaughn. So, I mean, yeah, you know, give me a call if if somebody, if you're listening and you feel like, you know, you don't know what to do or what the next steps are for, you know, your, you know, your life or, or you're, you're having some issues and you're feeling like you're alone, give me a call. Like, you know, I'm here to help. I'm here to listen. Um, you know, and I'm here to tell you that you're not alone and that you too can recover if, um, you know, you're honest, open and willing, and there is a solution to finding your way. There really is. And it looks different for everybody, but I promise you that there is hope at the end of the tunnel. Oh, thank you so much. It was such an honor to have you on this show. Um, thanks for sharing your story with me, with everybody else. And seriously, like super inspiring. Well done. Thank you so much, Jordana. I really, really appreciate you inviting me on here and keep doing the wonderful things that you're doing because you're making a difference. Your voice makes a difference. And you guys, <laughs> it's all makes a difference too. Okay. Thank you so much.